Now, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. In 1850, the New England author Nathaniel Hawthorne composed what some consider to be the greatest single piece of American literature, The Scarlet Letter. You had to read it in high school. In a tale set in a Puritan village outside Boston in the 1640s, a tale of a young woman named Hester Prynne, her, her out-of-wedlock infant daughter, Pearl, the father of the baby, a Puritan minister named Arthur Dimsdale, and an aged physician named Roger Chillingworth. In that tale of the Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne masterfully composes the clashing moralities of our fragile humanity. Guilt and sin, confession offered, forgiveness denied, sowing and reaping, revenge and redemption. And all of it is mysteriously, as you remember, woven into a single piece of fabric. As Hawthorne described it, a rag of scarlet cloth that assumed the shape of a letter, the capital letter A for adultery. Hester Prynne, a young woman, condemned to wear that scarlet letter as a sign of her private fall and her public shame. And Arthur Dimsdale, the minister, will bear the scarlet letter too, though for him it is a secret somehow mysteriously shaped onto the pale flesh of his chest. By the time the story is over, all four protagonists are indicted. The scarlet letter. Now, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher... This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Did Nathaniel Hawthorne draw his inspiration from John chapter 8? Probably not. And yet in the early morning shadows of this sunlit temple scene, all of the characters wear the scarlet letter, save one. And it's that save one who is the saving one for you and me and our private scarlet letters. Open your Bible with me, please, to the fourth gospel. We're back in John again today. Open your Bible, please, to John chapter 8. And while you're doing that, we're going to put our title slide on the screen right now. The study guide comes a, a bit into the narrative. This is the last word in our series this semester. Only two pieces left. Unbelievable how the time has flown by. Title of today's teaching... The Scarlet Letter. Those of you who are watching on television, you can see that website there, www.pmchurch.tv. We'd love to have you get the study guide. There is a sequence of seven in this study guide. It's a critical piece. I hope you'll download that study guide. Those of you who are here, if you don't have a study guide, put your hand up right now. 
Uh, ushers, thank you for making sure that everybody gets the study guide. Just move quickly. Ushers, thank you. This is a very sensitive subject. But we can't escape it. John 8 is the next passage for us in our journey through the last word, the fourth gospel. And so hold your hand up. In the balcony, hold your hand up. You're sitting overflow, hold your hand up. Make sure you get this study guide. All right, let's go. John chapter 8. I'll be in the New King James Version. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, this is one narrative you want to track. Pull the Pew Bible out in front of you. It will be page 720 in your Pew Bible. Let us go right now. John chapter 8, verse 2. Now early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. I mean, you try to picture this scene, the golden rays picking up the, the dust Flakes in the air streaming through the colonnades of that magnificent piece of architecture in Jerusalem, the mighty temple. It's like it's the day after Thanksgiving Walmart sale. People have been lined up, as it were, all night to be on this now crowded courtyard, the plaza choked with people. You know why, you know why the people come? Because the God that this young teacher, healer, Messiah keeps teaching about is such an attractive God. He's not somebody to be afraid of. He's somebody to be a friend of. And the masses are drawn to that picture. So there he is, Jesus, early morning, sun streaming onto that pastoral scene. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, here it comes, verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And I wish you'd hit the pause button right there before we finish that text because some of you have a newer translation and you're noticing that the story is bracketed in your Bible or it might be in italics and you're wondering, hey, wait a minute, Dwight, is this really legit? Is this a fair story to be sharing? I've done the research. Let me tell you that scholars almost to a man agree that the story is authentic. The big question is, does the story, be, does the story belong here in the fourth gospel? Many scholars feel that it ought to be tucked into Luke 21 in that narrative. There's a word here that John never uses in his entire gospel. We just read it, scribes. He's had a hundred opportunities to use the word scribes, but he has never used it. This is the only place, and ah, could it be an importation? Maybe John didn't write it, though the story is authentic. Verse 3, And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Read, we caught her in bed with a man who's not her husband. Now, we're glad we found you so early in the morning here in the temple. We have a question for you. Now, verse 5. Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you have to say? Well, number one, ladies and gentlemen, let's just get the record straight. These experts in the law are not correct about the law of Moses. It was a husband's role. Not their role. It's a husband's role. You got an issue? Bring your spouse. It was a husband's role to do what they're doing. And by the way, never to a public shaming like this temple scene. This is way off the playbook of the Mosaic Code. And also, by the way, the Mosaic Law was clear. Both adulterous parties were to be brought. 
Where's the guy? So often we turn on the woman. Where's the guy? You can't have adultery with just her. Where's the guy? Oh, conveniently forgotten and left behind. Now, it's true. The Mosaic Law does declare that if you have the scarlet letter A upon your garb, the sentence is death. If you're a woman and you're betrothed, that means a little higher level of, of engagement. You're engaged and you're caught with another man, death by stoning. The Mosaic Law, however, does not delineate the death if she's married. It's obvious that not only have they twisted the law, these religious leaders, but the fact is, this is no trial for the scarlet letter adulteress. They could care less about that woman. This is a trial of Jesus. This is a test. This is a trap. They got him. This is the perfect storm of a perfect trap. Because if Jesus said, and they're banking that he's going to say this, if Jesus says, you know what, guys? Lay off. Give this woman a break. Boom, they turn to the masses who are choking that, that temple plaza. Ah, we told you. No reverence for the law of Moses. If, however, Jesus would surprise them, he said, okay, good point. Take her out. Death. They'll go racing to Pilate. Here is this young upstart who is taking the prerogative of the Roman Empire, capital punishment, into his own hands. They've got him yes or no. Damned if you do. Damned if you don't. Perfect storm of a perfect trap. What say you, young teacher? Verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Sometimes it's okay to play deaf. Let me read you a, a behind-the-scenes depiction in this inspirational classic on the life of Jesus, The Desire of Ages. I put it on the screen for you. Jesus looked for a moment upon the scene, the trembling victim in her shame, the hard-faced dignitaries devoid of even human pity. Jesus' spirit of stainless purity shrank from the spectacle. Well, he knew for what purpose this case had been brought to him. He read the heart. He knew the character and life history of everyone in his presence. These would-be guardians of justice had themselves led their victim into sin. It's called entrapment. That they might lay a snare for Jesus, giving no sign that he had heard their question. He stooped and, fixing his eyes on the ground, began to write in the dust. Impatient in his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers drew near, urging the matter. Come on, come on, answer us. Oh, come on, what are you ducking this? Talk, talk urging the matter upon his attention. But as their eyes, following those of Jesus, fell upon the pavement at his feet, their countenances changed. There, traced before them, were the guilty secrets of their own lives. The people looking on saw the sudden change of expression and pressed forward to discover what it was that they were regarding with such astonishment and shame. Can you see it? What did he write? What a stunning portrait of God right here. You think about it. There are only two times in the Bible where the Bible specifically says God wrote with his finger. There's a third time, but it doesn't say he did it. Could have been an angel. Two times, once with his finger atop that shaly summit of Mount Sinai when he carves into the stone an eternal law. Nobody can erase this for as long as time lasts. With his finger, the Ten Commandments, the perfect code for human happiness. The other time, 
You got it. Right here. And isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that God himself made flesh will not embarrass even his enemies? He puts it in the dust so that one, and the record is gone. Amazing grace, as John Newton put it. Amazing love, as Charles Wesley sang it. What a God we have just seen. Verse 7, so when they continue, they're not willing to take no for an answer or silence for an answer. When they continued asking him, Jesus raised himself up and he said to them, all right, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She stands in the posture of shame, her eyes glued to the temple floor, her hair disheveled. Remember, they dragged her out of bed, her mascara leaving dark trails because of the tears through her rouged cheeks. I imagine Jesus steps forward to that woman and he takes her little chin And he raises her from the posture of shame until she's looking at him in his eyes. Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? You see, the woman was convinced. When it was it was the death sentence. When she heard this teacher say, All right, the one without sin, you throw the first stone, she cringed instinctively. This is it. This is death by stoning. She had no idea what Jesus has just written on that dusty floor. She has no idea that there is only one sinless one in that circle. And as it turns out, he is on her side. Where are your accusers? Anybody condemn you? And she responds. Verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I love this from Desire of Ages. Can I put it on the screen for you? Take a look at this. Her heart, at that moment, her heart was melted. And she cast herself at the feet of Jesus, sobbing out her grateful love and with bitter tears confessing her sins. This was to her the beginning of a new life, a life of purity and peace devoted to the service of God. In the uplifting, listen, in the uplifting of this fallen soul, Jesus performed a greater miracle than in healing the most grievous physical disease. For he cured the spiritual malady which is unto death everlasting. This penitent woman became one of his most steadfast followers. With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving mercy, end quote. And the scarlet letter was ripped from off 
her heart. Wow. The scarlet letter of adultery. Don't you wish all sexual sin were that easy to deal with? But then many... Maybe. Maybe it is. What do we have here? We have the scarlet letter. We have the scarlet sinner. We have the scarlet savior. But then maybe you're saying, hey, listen, Dwight, uh, please. I'm not, I'm, I'm, we're, we're not sexual sinners here. We are not sinners with sexual sins. We hardly need a scarlet savior. Is that right? I'm going to share with you now a couple emails I've received over the last three to four weeks. Email number one is from somebody within our community here. Listen to this. Apparently, there is an STD clinic in South Bend where people with sexually transmitted diseases, STD, where people with sexually transmitted diseases go for treatment. And according to this individual, research has been done at that clinic in South Bend only to discover that there are students from campuses all over the region who go to that clinic for their treatments. One of those campuses is the campus we are worshiping on right now. Ah, oh, come on, Dwight. Yeah, there was faulty research. Can't be, can't be our students. Listen to this piece. Got this from CNN, their belief blog, just this week. Why young Christians aren't waiting anymore. John Blake. True love doesn't wait after all. That's the, implication in the, in, that's the implication in the upcoming October issue. So this came out about a month ago. The, the upcoming October issue of an evangelical magazine that claims that young unmarried Christians are having premarital sex almost as much as their non-Christian peers. The article in Relevant Magazine, that's the title of the magazine, entitled Almost everyone's doing it, cited several studies examining the sexual activity of single Christians. One of the biggest surprises was a December 2009 study conducted by the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, which included information on sexual activity. While the study's primary report did not explore religion, some additional analysis focusing on sexual activity and religious identification yielded this result. 80% of unmarried evangelical young adults, 18 to 29, said that they have had sex. 80%. Evangelical means conservative. Slightly less than the 88% of unmarried adults, according to the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Organization. So I put that down. Maybe, ladies and gentlemen... The report of Seventh-day Adventist students seeking treatment at a local sexually transmitted diseases clinic is not so far-fetched after all. After all, the scarlet letter is a one-size-fits-all A. Verse 10 again. When Jesus had raised himself up, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, verse 11, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, ladies and gentlemen, would you please note that there are two parts to Jesus' response. You and I are so excited about the first part that we tend to forget there is a part two. And so today we're going to begin with part two and end with part one. All right? Let's go to part two. Let's read it again. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. That would be part one. Now, here comes part two. Go and sin no more. Yo, what's up with this go and sin no more admonition? Huh? Turns out that John is using the identical Greek phrase he did for Jesus when Jesus spoke to the man healed beside the pool of Bethesda a few Sabbaths ago. You remember that? The man healed by the pool of Bethesda? Identical word. Two words in the Greek. Just turn back uh, three pages to John 5, and you'll read it there for yourself. John 5, verse 14. This is that Sabbath healing by the side of that pool. Afterward, that Sabbath, verse 14, Jesus found him, the healed man, in the temple. He meets the man in the temple. The woman meets Jesus in the temple. They're at the same spot, and Jesus speaks this identical command. He meets the man in the temple, and he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus' language to the healed man indicates that his disease had been the result of his personal sinning. We don't know what that personal sin was, but it isn't very hard to to conclude that perhaps he suffered from some sort of sexually transmitted disease. Quit doing what you did or something worse will come on you. Two words in the Greek, three words in the English. Sin no more. Identical command. Why? Because sexual sin not only kills the heart, it can also kill the body. Enter now the second email I told you about from a worshiper here way out of town a few weeks ago. Hello, Pastor Nelson. Thanks for listening to me and praying with me for a few minutes yesterday. The websites, because after our visit, I said, please send me this in an email. The websites below will give you more than you want to know about HPV. Do you know what HPV is? The human papilloma virus. Women get it, men get it. So I go to the websites. Oh my, more than I wanted to know. Let me give you a quotation from the government's Center for Disease Control. It's in your study guide, but I'll put it on the screen for you and I'm going to read it in your hearing. HPV, the human papilloma virus, is passed on through genital contact, most often during vaginal and anal sex. HPV may also be passed on during oral sex. Most often, since HPV usually causes no symptoms, note this very carefully, since HPV usually causes no symptoms, most men and women can get HPV and pass it on without realizing it. Now hold on to your pew. People can have HPV even if years have passed since they had sex. Even men with only one lifetime sex partner can get HPV, end quote, says the government of the United States. 
Must be a big deal. Let me read one more before I go back to this email. This is from the New York Times. Just this last week. Put it on the screen for you. HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States. Scientists estimate that half of sexually active men and women have been infected and that 80% of women have had it by the age of 50. 80%. The virus has many strains, only some of which cause cancer. Let me go back to that email. Yes, we all make mistakes that we regret and the Lord will forgive but we end up still reaping the consequences of what we sowed. Some diseases lie dormant and come to surface in our later years, as seems to be happening with my husband. I've been tested also since I was concerned that I could have gotten something from him. Thankfully, I'm okay. I wish we had known about HPV when we were younger and had our pre-marriage physicals. Maybe that wasn't something that was required for testing. I don't know. Now he's suffering with bad side effects of the disease along with the chemo and radiation that have not cured him, the doctors say they can do nothing more for him and that he has less than a year to live due to too many lung tumors now. They can't do surgery or laser to help him at all. He's in the Lord's hands. And we are so grateful for all the prayers and support of so many caring, kind people. Do you know why she came up and talked to me? She says... Because this generation doesn't get it. They don't know about HPV. You can go years and take a bit of this partner and take a bit of that partner and take a bit of this partner and that partner. You can go years. And a few penicillin pills won't rid you of it. You can go years and then it returns with a vengeance. And apparently... It's fatal at times. Why do I read this? Why do I read all of this embarrassing material to you? Because you need to hear what Hollywood and the entertainment industry will never tell you as long as you live. You need to know that if you become sexually active before or outside of marriage, you are playing Russian roulette. You're spinning the barrel and putting it to your head. Oh, you say, listen, all my friends are sexually active. I might as well be too. Rubbish. Rubbish. You want a story like this? You want to live with that cocked gun at your head for the rest of your life? You're crazy. I'm talking to some of you who are right here. Right here. Don't take, sister, brother, don't take another step. Not another step. Ever read this Bible verse? Now you're going to start filling in your study guide. Here we go. Ever read a Bible verse? Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. There is a law in this universe, and it works like this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. I want to read it again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a woman sows, that she will also reap. It's the law that what you sow, you will reap. Ladies and gentlemen, that is true physically, and that is also true morally. 
Some people seek refuge in the story of David and Bathsheba to excuse their own adulteries. I mean, come on, Dwight, what's the problem here? David and Bathsheba? You know, I know she wasn't his wife, but look, he recovered. He spiritually recovered. He died saved. Do you know what, my friends? It was a tragic, tragic loss. I just finished reading First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Don't you tell me that David did not pay an astronomically high price for that scarlet letter that he earned the hard way. He did it himself. Jot this down, will you please? Never forget this. David lost his moral authority. Write that down. David lost his moral authority with his children, some of whom went out and repeated his sins in spades. His life unraveled. Don't ever go to David and Bathsheba and say, there's my biblical precedent. I'll get a quick forgiveness. Yo, and I've got it. You don't. You don't realize how high the price to take that scarlet letter upon your chest. Of course God loved David. Of course God forgave David. But God let David reap the baleful harvest of his free choice for the rest of his life. And God never stopped it. His family melted down. He watched his children. He could no longer speak with authority to them morally. They they melted down. Don't tell me that there's refuge for you in that celebrated Scarlet A narrative. What you sow, you will reap, no matter how close you personally become to Jesus. Jesus said to her, back to chapter 8, verse 11, and Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The scarlet command of the scarlet Savior to the scarlet letter sinner. Sin no more. Why? Because morally it will kill you. And now we've just found out it may physically kill you as well. Sin no more lest something worse comes on you, girl. Stop it. Boy, stop it. No more. You say, oh, Dwight, there's no way I can do it. I'm sexually addicted. You may be. But I have some good news for you today. Because just a few sentences later, Jesus makes a promise, and I want you to lock onto this promise and never forget it. Just drop down to verse 31 here in John 8. This is Jesus to you. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, you believe in Jesus. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know this email? This husband that the wife wrote about? This was during his wild days, sowing his wild oats. The problem is when you sow your wild oats, you will reap those wild oats. And he found Jesus. And then he found his wife. And 27 years later, he found out that what you sow, you reap. But he found, he found the freedom of Christ. That lifestyle, gone. He never went back to it. He lived faithfully to his wife the whole way. But God didn't stop the reaping and the sowing. He let it play out because it's the law of nature. What you sow, you reap. And that's precisely Jesus' point. Look, it drop down to verse 36. 
He repeats it. You come to Jesus. You come to the scarlet Savior. Look at this, verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. If you are suffering from sexual addiction right now, and you will know whether you are or not. You don't need a psychologist. You don't need a clinician to tell you. If you are suffering from sexual addiction right now, be it pornography, the most prevailing addiction among young men, sexually speaking, be it pornography, illicit sex of any kind, you put your finger on this promise of Christ and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I need you to set me free. But you need to cooperate with your scarlet Savior. So here comes that list of seven I promised you. Jot them down right now. Let's go. Seven. Number one, cooperate with your scarlet Savior. Number one, become accountable to someone else. You have to quit hiding this secret in your life. You must tell somebody, be it a trusted friend, a mature trusted friend, be it a counselor, it could be a pastor, but you must become accountable to somebody who's going to be saying to you, how you doing, buddy? Girl, how you doing? I've been praying for you. Find that prayer partner that you have confidence in. Become accountable. Number two, join a 12-step group for sex addiction. Our vice president for student services is here. We can get you, if you're on this campus, we can get you to such a group. You're, you're off campus. You're watching now somewhere in the world, somewhere in the nation. Go to your yellow pages. Look up under 12-step groups. You'll find a group. Number two, join a 12-step group for sex addiction. Number three, eliminate all triggers in your life. This is critical whether you are young or middle-aged or aged. This is critical. Eliminate the triggers. You're saying, Dwight, what are you talking about? I'm talking about websites. There's some websites you can never go back to again for the rest of your life until Jesus comes. Eliminate those websites. I'm talking about DVDs that you have in your collection. You don't need those DVDs. Get rid of those triggers. I'm talking about sexually suggestive movies and music. And that's about everything coming out of Hollywood today. Everything is set up to trigger, to trigger, to trigger, to trigger, to hook and pull you into that awful, dark hole that too many can never escape. Get rid of the triggers. That parked car alone on a Saturday night, get rid of it. That apartment where nobody else is there, your roommate's not there, you have your friend over, get rid of it. All triggers, remove the triggers. Those are the hooks. You can't afford sexual, sexually addicted soul. You cannot afford to live with those triggers any longer. Number four, begin daily physical exercise for physical release, particularly men. Come on, guys. Start, get up, get up, get up out of bed. Get up out of bed early. Start running. Start walking. Start pressing metal. Do something. Release the energy that's pent up in you. Start physical exercise. By the way, ladies, you do well to walk yourself. No pumping iron for you, please. You look fine. So begin daily physical exercise for physical release. Daily. I run every day. Don't draw any conclusions from that. I run for health. <laughs> physical exercise. Come on. That's what it's about. Daily physical exercise. All right, that's number, that's number four. Jot it down. Number five, begin daily spiritual exercise through the active prayer and Bible study of your life. Begin to add this. Now, this one is absolutely critical, which is why it comes right here in the center. Jesus, we just read this in verse 31. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you get into this book, 
The truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You have to eat here spiritually. You say, Dwight, I don't know what to do. Go to our website. It's at the top of your study guide. Go to that website. Those of you watching, you've already heard the website. Go to the website. And when you go to to the website, there'll be a banner that says, A New Way to Pray. Click onto that banner, and I will personally tell you how, share with you how, to have that quiet time alone with Christ in the Bible. You've, you cannot, for the sake of your soul and your victory, you cannot omit step five. Step six, shift the focus of your life to service for others. You got to get off of this me, 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 me. I got to have this. I got to have this. Ah, that's all. Sexual appetite is appetite, self-gratification. It's self-self. Get off the self-kick. You'll never get off it completely. You will battle self till Jesus comes, as Paul did. But get off it as best you can by focusing on other people. Focus on service. Focus on others. And finally, number seven, thank God moment by moment for the freedom he is bringing to you. Just believe that that freedom starts today. That freedom starts today. Go home and begin these seven. Today, that freedom begins. You have to put your foot in the Jordan. It won't part while you stand there. You have to believe that it's going to part, and then it will part, and God will do for you what you have longed for him to do. Set you free from that ball and chain at last. You don't need to go another week. At last, through the scarlet Savior. Two-part admonition. Part two, go and sin no more. But oh, thank God that before he said that, he spoke part one. Verse 10, and when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. There's part one. But Jesus promised that scarlet-lettered woman on that sunlit morning in John 8, he promised the proud, haughty Pharisee on that moonlighted moment in John 3. Watch this. They go together. This was set up to go together. Drop back to John 3. Everybody memorizes John 3, 16. What's the problem with verse 17? Why do we always stop with verse 16? We always stop there. Let's put verse 16 on the screen, but you can, you can repeat it without even looking at the screen. For God so loved the world. Say it out loud with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then we stop and say, Hallelujah, Amen. And there's verse 17. Verse 17, look at this. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Neither do I condemn you. I didn't come to this planet to make everybody feel guilty. I came to this planet to make everybody know that they can be saved through me. I do not condemn you. I don't condemn you. I know they do. I know the Board of Elders does. I know The crowd does, but I do not condemn you. He's teaching the gospel. The mighty apostle Paul comes along. Look at this, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Would you write that down, please? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Come to me, Jesus says. Scarlet-lettered woman. Scarlet-lettered man, come to me. Come, 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 come. Come here, boy. Come to me. I'm not going to condemn you. Just come to me. We'll do this together. The rest of the way, you and me, together. 
Neither do I condemn you. I scribble these words from Desire of Ages at the top of this page, John 8. And I want you to have those same words. It's in your study guide. Put it on the screen. I love this. Isn't this beautiful? See it on the screen. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. You may say, I am sinful. Very sinful. And you may be. But the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. He turns no weeping contrite one away. He does not tell to any all that he might reveal. But he bids every trembling soul take courage. Freely will he pardon all who come to him for forgiveness and restoration. Come, come, come to me. I don't condemn you. Come. Let me start over with you. I'll save you. I came to save you, not lose you. Come to me. Come to me. And guess what? John wanted to make sure that we knew Calvary is embedded even in this story of the scarlet A. So John puts that strange vocative on the lips of Jesus. John has Jesus say to her, Woman, woman, that's what Jesus said on the cross. Looking down upon that woman, his mother, he says, Woman. It is a strange title, but John inserts it here so that immediately we remember Calvary is what this story is all about anyway. The scarlet Savior who took our scarlet letter, put it on his own chest, and died our guilty sacrifice instead. The scarlet-lettered Savior. Woman? Man. Neither do I condemn you. Now go. Leave it behind. Augustine, the great church father, who himself had a sexually fallen past, Augustine describes this moment, and I love the sentence. Let me say it in your hearing. He describes this moment as the story ends. There were, these are Augustine's words, there were left but two, the pitiable woman and pity. Capital P, pity. There were left... Let me, let me put it on the screen because you need to see it. There were left but two. The pitiable woman and pity himself. Come to me, Jesus says. And when you come to him, there will be left but two. The pitiable sinner and pity himself. Oh, why would a man, why would a woman, why would a young adult, why would a teenager not come to him right now? Right now. Why not? I want to pray with you. I want to kneel and pray with you. I wish you'd kneel with me right now. Oh, Jesus, we hear your words. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And for that reason, we are all on our knees now. Nobody here has a stone to throw. Oh, Christ Jesus, are you really this gracious, this gentle, this strong?
that you can deliver her, you can deliver him. Dear Savior, right now I pray for him, a man who is struggling with his sexual addiction. I pray for him, Lord, that he will not give up, that he will not despair, that he will know that there is power in the gospel of the Scarlet Savior, that he will know that you will move, you have already moved heaven and hell to free him from that ball and chain. Oh God, I pray for that man. He's young. There's so much of life left for him. Please set him free. Draw his heart to you. And let him find in his Savior the freedom he hungers for. I pray for that man, Father. He's middle-aged. All these years he has battled his demons. Does he have to go on like this? Oh, Christ, put your arm around him right now. Whisper to him, I don't condemn you. Come to me. You won't have to do it anymore. Oh, Christ. Put your arm around him. I pray for her. It was all to have been such a beautiful moment. She got drawn in, and now nothing but ashes and a broken heart. Oh, Christ, may she know that you do not condemn her, that you have the divine power to recreate her heart and to make her pure again, to restore her soul and make her whole again. Please, Jesus, don't let her give up. Put your arms around her. And that older woman who lives with the memory that in a moment like this becomes bright, flashing red with clanging bells deep within her. Oh, Christ. For her, the same. I don't condemn you. Come, woman. Come. We go together. Forgetting those things which are behind, we will reach for what is ahead. Go and leave your past behind. Oh, Father, scarlet letters, scarlet-lettered Savior, dear God, we kneel before you. Do whatever it takes to raise us back up onto our feet. And with your voice in our ears, we will walk out of this sanctuary with the assurance that your grace is sufficient for us. Holy Savior, that is our prayer, our earnest, longing prayer.
There's that beautiful gospel chorus. And while we're still on our knees, would you sing it with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn. Amen.